And in conclusion, <laughs> Kathy and I made the decision last week that we were going to go down to Gatlinburg uh, for the marriage retreat. They've been doing it for, I don't know, maybe 20 years or more. And I figured Kathy needed to tune up, and so we went down and <laughs> spent the weekend doing that. I'll tell you, I appreciate so much the resources that we have in our brotherhood to have those who can help us to look into our marriage wherever we are. There's always room for improvement, and we always want to be striving to do better. And we had so many wonderful speakers, and if you didn't know, Hiram was one of those and did a fantastic job. I don't know. We may have neglected to tell them that we were going uh, down there, but it was good to see them. We wanted to check on them and make sure that they were okay. In our Monday night class, we are going through the book of Acts, and it takes some time to, to, to really drill down and to look into it like we would want to. And we don't have that opportunity, so I thought that it might be helpful for us to augment what's happening on our Monday night class and look more deeply into one of the themes that you'll find in the book of Acts. Acts has so many different emphases. It is the history book of the church, and one of the surprising emphasis of the book of Acts are the sermons that you find in it. We have recorded for us several of the at least excerpts of the sermons of preachers like Peter and Stephen and Paul. And there are allusions that are made to other sermons or other teaching like Philip and Barnabas and others who are spreading the word everywhere, the message of Jesus Christ. But when we come to Acts chapter 4, we see the church in its infancy. So far as we know, it only exists, at least as is recorded for us, in the city of Jerusalem, though the people on Pentecost are steadily making their way out into the world to share the message of Jesus Christ. And we read that what happens in Acts chapter 3 is that Peter and John heal a lame man. And as a result of this, there's a great uproar. In fact, Luke tells us that uh, as they were teaching the people that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed that they were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead and they laid their hands on them and they placed them in the jail until the next day for it was already evening. And a great number of the people who heard believed and the number of the men came to be 5,000. And it, uh, uh, Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of priestly descent, assembled together in Jerusalem, the priests, and the elders, and the scribes. And they placed Peter and John in the center and said, By what power and in what name did you do this thing? And Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said, Rulers and elders of the people... If we are on trial this day for a benefit done to a sick man as to how he is made well, be it known to you that in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, in this name is this man made well or whole before you this day. This is the stone which was set at naught of you, the builders, the one who is the chief cornerstone, and neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. As you read there in Acts chapter 4 verse 1 through verse 12, 
you see, depending on the version that you have, in the ESV it says they were greatly annoyed, but the New American Standard that we just read says that they were greatly disturbed by the teaching and the preaching that took place. You know, I never saw my dad's professional resume But I heard about it some years after I had already started preaching. I spoke to a man who was an elder in a church near Jasper, Alabama, a place where my dad had applied and did not go. And he mentioned something that he still remembered from my dad's resume. It was my dad's stated philosophy of preaching. He says, my preaching is designed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I know that that's not original with my dad. And yet I think that it very aptly describes the response or the reaction that happens to preaching. Depending on the condition of heart and the state of the life. There's an incredible thing that happens when you come to Acts chapter 4. You see one message that was preached in Acts chapter 3 and there's this varied response to it. On the one hand, you have this massive number of people who heard the message and in hearing it, they believed. And yet there were a lot of other people who were greatly agitated. They were disturbed by the preaching and the teaching that took place in that particular message. And so we find that word disturbed, a very interesting word for us to look at. The word disturbed there means to provoke or to be burdened down by provocative action that causes one to be greatly uh, uh, irked at something or someone. You see, when we come to understand what that word means, it's not just talking about some bad habit that might get on your nerves. It's not like talking with your mouth full or chewing with your mouth open or biting your nails. It's something far greater than that. It was a response to such a degree that they took Peter and John and they put them in jail. It was a response visceral enough that all these powerful officials came together in their opposition to Peter and John. And the message that you'll find in Acts chapter 3 is the message of Jesus that we share today. I think it's helpful for us to understand that this message as we proclaim it one to one or in larger settings like this is going to have a varied response. I want you to think with me tonight about five reasons why this message was so disturbing to the leaders, the religious leaders, and to some who heard it. First of all, I suggest to you that this message was disturbing because many believed it. Now that by itself did not make the message acceptable. But it's incredible to see that after they've healed the lame man, Peter preaches this masterful sermon and it's disturbing because so many people, 5,000 in number, they hear it and they embrace it and they accept it. I want to take you back for just a moment to Acts chapter 3 and I want you to see the contents of that sermon just very briefly. I want you to notice that this sermon that Peter preaches in Acts chapter 3 credits God. If you'll notice and take the time to walk through that sermon Peter puts God center stage. He makes God in the spotlight, not himself. And when you see what he says, he says it was God that glorified his servant Jesus, verse 13. It was God who raised Jesus from the dead, verse 15. It was God who spoke by the mouth of his prophets, verse 18 and verse 22. It was God who spoke to Abraham concerning the promise of the Messiah, verse 25. It was God who promised to bless those who repent, verse 26. 
The late Wendell Winkler used to say, let God get a word in edgewise. And as you look at Peter's sermon there in Acts chapter 3, he credits God for the good things that take place. But not only did his sermon, was it such that it credited God, but it also magnified Jesus. If you'll look at that sermon very carefully, this sermon is as much about the Son as it is about the Father. It's incredible. I don't know of a place in the New Testament where Jesus is mentioned with so many different words and in so many different ways than in this brief sermon in Acts chapter 3. You will see how he is uh, described for us. He is the servant. Acts 3 verse 13 and verse 26. He is the holy and the righteous one. Verse 14. He is the prince of life. Verse 15, he is Jesus, verse 16, he is Christ, verse 18, he is Lord, verse 19, he is the prophet, verse 22. This is a sermon about Christ. It is about Christ the sacrifice, verse 13 through 15. Christ the selected one, verse 20. Christ the spokesman, verse 22. And Christ the solution, verse 26. When we look at Jesus here as he is proclaimed, more is said about Jesus in this sermon, in this few words, as you'll find anywhere, from stem to stern. Peter centers his sermon. Any successful proclamation about the gospel is going to have Jesus at the heart of it. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. But as you continue to look at that sermon in Acts chapter 3, you will also find that not only did it credit God, not only did it magnify Jesus, but it also convicted of sin. It convicted of sin. When we come to look at verse 14 and 15, we see that he had disowned, been disowned by them. In verse 17, it was in ignorance. And yet, there was no excuse for that, verse 17. Not only do we see that, but he says in the end of that sermon that it was because of your wicked ways that this occurs, verse 26. You'll notice that there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of good news in this sermon. But this sermon connected the people to their spiritual guilt. This is the sermon that's being preached after the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3. It is one that credited God. It magnified Jesus. It convicted of sin, but it also produced for us the conditions that were necessary. The conditions that were necessary. As we look at the lessons, the sermons in the book of Acts, we will find that not all the conditions are mentioned in all the sermons. In the first sermon that was preached in Acts chapter 2, you don't see anything said about belief. It's implied, but it's not stated. Instead, the emphasis is on repentance and baptism. When we get to the second sermon here in Acts chapter 3, baptism is not explicitly talked about. Instead, there is faith and repentance, verse 16 and verse 19. And the point of all of this is that it's, there's, salvation has two parts. There's man's part and there's God's part. And so when we look at this lesson, this sermon that's being preached, we see that it had conditions. But we also see that in this sermon, he cited scripture. When you look at this relatively short sermon, you will see that he quotes scripture twice. In verse 22 and in verse 25. But he also quotes biblical characters and biblical events in that sermon. He seemed to believe that powerful, effective declaration of the word of God, properly done, puts an emphasis on the word of God. And so when we look at this sermon in Acts chapter 3, isn't it surprising that there is a varied response to that? There are the 5,000 men who hear this lesson and they believe and they're convicted and they obey it. 
But then there are others who are disturbed by it. When you see their response to it, you see a truth that we are confronted with that the same gospel, when it's shared with others, is going to have a disturbing effect. It's going to disturb communities. It's going to upset dynamics in lives. The gospel is the great separator. It separates belief from unbelief. You know, Jesus taught us much in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his household. He that loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And just a few verses before that, in verse 21, he says that brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. And you will be opposed by all men for my name's sake. But the one that endures to the end, he shall be saved. When we see the powerful effect of the gospel, it's going to disturb some. It's going to cause some to turn their hearts away, but it's also going to cause a great many to be unsettled in a good way, and it's going to reach into their hearts, and they're going to believe. I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that effective preaching and biblical preaching are not one and the same. But what makes Peter's lesson so good was that it was biblical to its core. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not uh, heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? As it is written, how beautiful on the mountain are them that preach the glad tidings of good things. But they've not all heeded his word. As Isaiah has said, Lord who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 14 through 17. That's the message that Peter and John are proclaiming in Acts chapter 3 that causes the disturbing response in Acts chapter 4. This message was so disturbing to the religious leaders because many people believed it. It disrupted the the status quo of, of their lives. And they were intimidated and frightened by that. But a great many people were blessed by it. But then second, I would suggest to you that this preaching was disturbing because it claimed a divine origin. Verse 5 through verse 8. Peter and John are put in prison for their trouble. And then the religious leaders call them to give an account for what happened to the lame man. And uh, Peter claims that this is something that was done in the name and by the power of Jesus. Verse 10, Luke tells us that he was moved with the Holy Spirit as he delivers the word to them in verse 8. Peter is trying to make the point that this man is here standing before you whole because of the power and the work of God. And that power was of God and not of human origin. You know what Peter's saying? He's saying that the reason why the message was so important was it was backed by, it had God as its origin and its source. You know, the same thing is true today. We don't have the ability to uh, touch people's bodies and, and heal their physical ailments. But we have a power that's as powerful in the message, that saving power of the gospel. It claimed a, a divine origin. I like something that Neil Lightfoot had to say. He said that the claims of the Bible plus the contents of the Bible equals a convincing case for the inspiration of the Bible. 
When you come to understand that man in his finite reasoning is not able to reason himself to know God. God has to reveal himself to us. He has got to show us that he is. Man has limited knowledge. God has an unlimited knowledge that transcends that. What Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 7 when he says, let the wicked man forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and on our God and he will abundantly pardon him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord God. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so also are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we look at this message in Isaiah 55, verse 7 through 9, it's a reminder to us that we need God to reveal himself, and the message that we have is a divine message. If I thought that this was just the product of humanity, I would not waste anybody's time, mine or anybody else's, by preaching it. But it claims a divine source, and it demonstrates that in the things that we see. Suppose I were to tell you that there was a man that lived in, named John Smith who went to Australia in 1870. That he was taken by a ship from England and he was dropped off at the age of eight years old and nothing more was said or known about him after that point. And I were to ask you to write a true story about the rest of his life, you couldn't do that. Suppose I were to ask you to write a story about a a true story about a trip to Mars that took place in 2500. You couldn't do it. If your great, 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 great grandfather came into your house, was able to do that and saw the television and the internet and the electricity in use and you were to ask him without any kind of prompting, coaxing, or education, I'd like you to write a description of that, he would write a description in the simple language that he and the people of his time could understand. That's what we have in the writing of the Bible. God, as it were, takes his prophets forward into the future. And he gives them a vision. He tells them things that are going to take place in the future. And he says, I want you to write it in the simple language of your time. You know, sometimes when the writers wrote about that, they didn't even know what it was that they were talking about. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 8, Daniel said, When I heard these things, I could not understand them. And so I said, Lord, what is the meaning of this? Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 10 through 12 that the the prophets looked into these things and wanted to know more about what they meant. So God uses the means through which we communicate. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 13, he combines spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And Peter and John on this occasion in Acts chapter 3 that leads to the events in chapter 4 uses the vehicle of language demonstrated by the power of the healing of the lame man. And it proved that the message was of divine origin. And because it disrupted the worldview of those leaders, it disturbed them. You know, because we say that this message has a divine and not a human source, to some folks it's disturbing. But then third, this lesson, this preaching was disturbing because it was life-changing. Now this is disturbing in a little bit different sense, isn't it? Because Peter says that this man was made well. The power that was at work on that occasion was such that it caused this man who could not walk To walk again. It was disturbing because it changed his life. 
It gave him the ability to do what he could not do before. It disrupted the status quo. It's interesting that this man was not looking to be made better on the occasion when he meets Peter and John. He just wants a handout. Here's what his life had been like up to this point. He has to have somebody to take him by the hand and carry him to the gate of the temple and to beg alms. Acts chapter 3 and verse 2. And he gets just enough to get by so that somebody can take him back and place him at the gate of the temple to beg alms again. That's what life was like. That's all he knew. That was his purpose. And along comes Peter and John with not just this miracle that he does, but a message that life can be so much more than that. And they said, if we're on trial for doing a benefit to a sick man, how that he was made well. The message that we preach does not have the ability to make bodies whole, but it has the power to save the soul. In James chapter 1 and verse 21, James says, Wherefore, laying aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, receive with humility the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Truth is transforming. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul says, And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, truth is transforming because it changes us from the inside out. Truth is transforming because it helps us to do what God wants us or to know what God wants us to do. And truth is transforming because it enables us to do what is good and acceptable and perfect or mature. And you know how resonating that message is in a world that is looking everywhere for the hope of the message of the gospel? So many of the people that we're going to leave from here and see this week, whether it's on the job or at school, they're going through this repetitive cycle of life. There's no depth of purpose as far as the Bible is concerned. They're just going through the routine and rinsing and repeating day after day. It was said that in the walls of a sewer in Cook County, Illinois, there was a scrawling on the wall of a man who was describing his philosophy of life, his purpose of life. He says, I dig of the ditch to buy the food, to get of the strength, to dig of the ditch. The idea is it's just over and over again. Clarence Darrow, the man who was uh, the Uh, defendant in the Scopes trial that allowed evolution to be taught in school, a famous agnostic in the state of Tennessee. This man tried to explain what his philosophy and purpose in life was. And he says, it's Luke chapter 5 and verse 5, We have labored hard all night and we have brought in nothing. Do you see how disturbing, how it upset the status quo of the lame man's life? When the gospel came to him, It shook things up in a great way. It helped him to see, you know, it may have seemed to him like his life was turned upside down. But what the Lord was doing through Peter and John is he was turning his life upside right. He was helping him to see the the order and the health that God wanted him to have spiritually speaking. When you look at this man's life, you will notice that it made him well emotionally. After he encounters Peter and John, we see that he is walking and leaping and praising God because Jesus has come into his life. There's a joy that he did not have before. It blessed him emotionally, but it also blessed him socially. As you'll see in verse 10, 
The people who see this man who was lame, who was a beggar before, they don't even recognize him almost. He's so changed. He's been elevated by God. And what about religiously or spiritually? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't record it for us. But I wonder if he is one of the 5,000 men who believe and obey the gospel. Surely he heard Peter's sermon And as he does, he is made well. It's disturbing in that it disturbs the status quo. It may disrupt life. But it takes us beyond what we might have been otherwise. And there are people in our lives who are needing that kind of change to occur. And so this message that occurs in Acts chapter 3 that we read about in Acts chapter 4 was disturbing because it was life-changing. It was also disturbing because it was authoritative. You'll notice in verse 10 and 11 that Peter says that it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we do these things. He appeals to the authority, and those leaders did not like that. It points to a tendency of of human nature. We as human beings don't like the idea of submitting to authority. I'm a a history nerd, of course, and, and I love military history. And one of my favorite books I've read in the last few years is The Proud Tower by Barbara Tuchman. And she writes about a movement, an anarchist movement that was growing in the period leading up to World War I. And in this, especially as it impacted Europe and the United States, there were a great many significant political figures that were assassinated, including our American president, William McKinley. They were facing, in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, deplorable working conditions. They worked long hours for very little pay. They had no access to education and health care. And so they were convinced by certain voices in uh, prominence that they should throw off all governmental rule and all authority. It could not last long because rational people understood that's chaos. It cannot be that way. They understood that there has to be law and order. In fact, the Bible teaches as much, doesn't it, in Romans chapter 13. But sometimes, religiously speaking... We may not want to be in submission to authority, to Jesus' authority. Sometimes people would like to boil it all down to this. Just love Jesus. And without any kind of biblical qualification, if you love Jesus, whatever else, it doesn't really matter. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We find it disturbing to submit to authority because we would rather be guided by our feelings than by biblical reason. Sometimes what we desire to do becomes our guiding star. And sometimes it is disturbing to submit to authority because we witness people of prominence getting away with it. Whether it's politicians or athletes or celebrities, if them, why not us? Sometimes we find it's disturbing to submit to authority because our Lord in the Christian age does not practice instant punishment. And because of that, we say, I can rebel against that authority and there's nothing to be done about it. It's that way even in the Old Testament times. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And Paul is speaking to a a non-Christian audience when he says, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's an appointed a day. It's disturbing to people to think that there is a day of accounting. And it's disturbing to submit to authority because it's intoxicating to think in terms of instant gratification. 
with the flesh in control. We crowd the spiritual out of the mind. And Peter and John are preaching a message that says there's an authority. And those who don't like that authority are going to find that very disturbing. But it was the message that they preached. But you'll also find that this preaching was disturbing because it was exclusive. There's something that Peter says at the end of this discussion that's very interesting. In verse 12, he says, Neither is there salvation in any other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In a multicultural, pluralistic age, people don't like to hear that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong. The message that Peter is preaching on this occasion is this is the way. This is the message And there is no other way. The Jewish leaders wanted another way. You know, it was just a few years ago that there was a YouTube video that went viral. And maybe you remember this. Penn Jillette is the one that was uh, talking about after a show, a man that came up to him and gave him a Bible. And he said he was a polite, he was a well-spoken and a courageous young man. You know, Penn Jillette's a pretty sharp guy. He comes up to him and he gives him the Bible and is trying to, in Penn's words, to proselytize him. He says, I have great respect for those who try to proselytize or to convert those that they think are lost and are going to hell. The the pointed question that he asked is convicting. He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to know that there's a heaven and a hell and not try to warn them? Now, the point is not about evangelism. The point is that if we have faith that this book is from God, is what it claims to be, how much do we have to not love those around us to not share this objective standard? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans talks about a form of teaching. It is in Ephesians 4 and verse 5, it's the one faith. It's not the subjective faith. You know, sometimes we'd like to say, that is society, that I have rules to follow, you have yours, that we don't have to all obey the same rules. But there's an objective standard that has to be shared. And Peter and John shared on this occasion, there's no other way but his way. And that's a message that's going to be disturbing. You know, the thing that's interesting is that Peter and John were willing to take a great risk. It was not going to be, they knew, a popular message that they had to share. I think that we can look into our lives and say that they're very comfortable. Our lives as they are can be very comfortable as it relates to the community and the job and school and in our families. But we maybe have to risk that comfort in order to share the gospel of Christ. Peter and John faced those same risks. They were... Uh, citizens alongside of these other leaders. They were Jews like they were Jews. And they had to face the disapproval of those individuals among the Jews. But they didn't hesitate to make that risk. And the reason they did that is something that I think that will be beneficial to all of us. One of the emphases of the early church, what propelled Peter and John was a quality that God wants in us, and that's boldness. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, the the leaders looked at Peter and John and they took notice of them, that they were uneducated and untrained men and yet they could see that they had spent time with Jesus. And what they said was convicting, verse 16. And those leaders stood up against Peter and John and said, 
we don't want you to speak that message anymore. And then Peter says, we cannot help but do it. Verse 20. I think that's the challenge for us. It's the challenge for us this week and every week. And that is to go and and to be bold and to share Christ and to take that risk. You know, when people encounter us, we don't want them to say he or she is attractive or wealthy or sophisticated. What we really want them to say is I can tell that they have spent time with Jesus. And the beautiful thing about that message shared is yes, it's going to disturb some, but a great many people are going to believe. The power of the gospel message is such that it reaches into the good and honest heart. You look at Peter and John, they're part of that process of turning the world upside down because they were sharing a message. It is a disturbing message, but it's the Lord's message. It's a disturbing message in that it may make some folks upset, but it's disturbing in that it reaches down into the heart and it changes us from the inside out. Maybe this evening that there's one who needs to respond to that message that the power of the gospel message that reaches down into the heart and stirs and convicts, perhaps in your conviction and knowing that Jesus was the atonement for your sins, that he was the grace supplied by our Lord at the cross, that you want to respond to that in obedient faith. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're ready to do as they did in response to that first sermon in Acts chapter 2 and repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, that opportunity will be yours tonight. We would love to help you to obey the gospel. Or maybe as a child of God you find yourself in a position where you need the prayers of God's people with you and for you in living the Christian life. We would love to assist you and help you. Let's help each other, encourage each other to be bold and bold in sharing Christ in this community that's longing for the truth and looking for a deeper purpose in this life. If this is your invitation, we would urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.